We are in the Gospel of Ruth, if you will, the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, Gina will run one over to you. Uh, <laughs> so raise your hand if that's the case. If not, open up your Bibles that are in your laps or the flip in your app to Ruth chapter 3. Eighth book of the Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, right before the Samuels and Kings and Chronicles. <clears throat> we're in chapter 3. We're going to go right to prayer. Let's watch God do really, really cool things. Pray with me, would you please? God, thank you for the privilege of this time. For all that you intend to do tonight in our hearts, in this beautiful love story. May our hearts and our minds be ready. So Lord, if there's anything interfering right now, with what you want to do. Right now, dear Lord. Don't let us play church tonight. Don't let us just go through the motions. Don't let this just be one of those nights. Don't let there ever be such a night. Tonight, God, so revolutionize us, so blow us away, so minister to us that we find ourselves amazed, just amazed at you and your goodness and your love for us. And God, I pray that tonight your word would burst open and come alive, Lord, that for each of us you'd grab us by the throat tonight. This would be more than just a beautiful story that we get to look at. But Lord, that you would lay bare our hearts and eradicate from them everything and anything that doesn't belong to you. That God, tonight, whatever there is, whatever muck, whatever filth, whatever impropriety, God, eradicate them from us. And tonight, let us stand perfect and pure before you in heart and in intention as well. God, I just commit this night to you. And I ask you to do a glorious work in this time now. So have your way. You are so good. So good. Lord, don't let us just pop into our own thing. Let your word ravish through our spirits and just truly minister tonight. As the tables before us, Lord, to feast, may we truly feast, I pray. Immerse me in your spirit that you would appear. Empower me so that you would do the work. And now, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. I would pray tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the scriptures be the authority. During a spiritual freefall, socially, spiritually, 
laden with spiritual ethics, uh, situational ethics, I'm sorry, in the midst of a maelstrom of insanity and moral anarchy, God gives us a love story as perfect and as pure as his own heart. It would be hard to find a time more mucked up than this, other than perhaps what we're in right now. The appraisal's two simple things. Right is not a universal standard, but an individual invention. Hey, what's right for you is what's right for you. That was the idea. Much like where we stand today. And that there was no king in Israel. Now, that did not mean they weren't figureheads, governors and judges. It was the time of judges. They were figureheads. But there was no one for which the people were willing to put themselves under in submission other than by threat of penalty. There was no glorious rest and humble submission to the authority that God wished to lay, which would be himself. So a man, who we read, by the way, is no longer on the picture here. There's a spoiler for you. His name is My God is King, Elimelech has a wife and two sons, sick and tired, Malon and Mahlon and Pilion, leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because there's no bread there, there is a famine. God promises that. He promises in your life and in mine, join us, if we are going to be disobedient. God does not want you to flourish. God does not want you to prosper. And God wants you miserable. If you're running from him. Because he does not want you in a false sense of security. And we can blame it on whatever we want. But in the end of it all, if our relationship with God is not right, there will be drought, and there will be famine, and there will be restlessness, and there will be emptiness, and vacancy in our hearts and in our minds, and we just feel like, I've got to get out, I've got to do it, whatever, I've got to fill this spot. And truth be told, if you're not right with the Lord, nothing's going to fill this spot and you'll run like crazy from thing to thing. In this case, they leave the land of Israel, head east to what we know today as Jordan. In those days, in this particular area, was called the area of Moab. There, the two sons meet two girls uh, of girl peace. They each get married. So that means that there's man married, an Israeli man married to an Israeli woman who have two Israeli sons married to two Moabite women. And all three men died. And what's left at this point is a woman, the wife, the mother, whose name is Naomi, which means pleasant, has now found herself in a place where she no longer considers herself pleasant. She's watched her husband and both children die. No one should have to She is angry. And she was disappointed. And she is bitter. Because to be honest, things just did not turn out the way she had hoped. She has no idea she is going to be now in the greatest love story in the Old Testament. She has no idea how she is going to be chronicled in the Bible. It isn't like anywhere she's like, oh, well, then maybe this will turn out to be some cool story in the Bible. We don't read that. All she knows is something was cool and now it's not. 
There was this moment of hope. There was this moment of peace. There was family and family gone and it's emptiness and the house isn't the same. How could it be? All the men are gone. She's lonely. And she's broken. She's hurt. These were people that she relied on, leaned on, rested on. And they're gone. And she turns and says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because that's who I am now. And she has let these trials define her, not refine her. And it can happen to any of us. And all of a sudden, you become known in your own heart, not just what other people know. You become known as the person that, and they come up with whatever the situation is that you've experienced. And I'm not here to belittle the experience. But then you look at yourself as used. And we all know that a used product isn't as valuable as a new one. We see ourselves as painted, broken. And we all know broken items don't sell like working items. She tells the two girls in politeness, go ahead and head back to the lab. Because I've heard now that there's food back in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to go back. And I would imagine that if we crawled into her mind, she probably just thought she'll go back and die among her people and be buried among her people. She has no idea of the friend that Ruth is going to be to her and how God is about to sow her in, hem her into the lineage of Jesus. She has no idea of that. She has no idea how, somehow in all of this, her life is going to be part and parcel. Her life, the concrete that is of her heart right now, will be laid down to be pavement for the roadworks for the coming of the Messiah. She doesn't know any of that. Because, to be honest, when you get hurt, it's kind of hard to see past it. And all she knows right now is the hurt. All she knows now is the emptiness. All she knows now is the pain. So go ahead, girls. Just go home. Start over. I wish I could. But no, 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 no. One of them does after the, a polite sort of a, you know, how we say we will, but we really kind of wish we hadn't. Uh, and, and then the other one, though, says, look at I committed to you. See, it wasn't just that she married in. She got adopted. I'm like, I'm part of this family, and I'm not leaving. This wasn't just to marry your son. Man. This is a loose paraphrase. I'm here for good. I'm in this thing for the long haul. So, the two of them head back. The crowd is excited, which tells me that Naomi must have been much of a Naomi when um, she left. I mean, she must have been a very pleasant person because people seem very excited to see her come back. She left the gap when she left. She didn't know that. And as she returns back now, after a decade, after being someplace where she's had the greatest heartaches, the people see the pain. And now this is the new her. Miserable, bitter, not with any real hope. Wishing she could go back to a time that was simpler when there was a husband and son, but she can't. And you know when you're in that place where you can't go back, 
The only thing left to do is to be angry at God or to trust Him that He's got a bigger plan. You need to know this. The moment you said yes to Jesus, you became, in, you got, you became recruited into ministry. Like it or not. And there is no reverse in the vehicle of ministry. There's no place to hit the reverse and go back because there's no back to go back to. If you went back to a place you knew, it won't be the place you knew because it has had the time to change that you've been gone. That place doesn't exist the way you knew it before. But there's something that happens where the devil loves to keep us looking in our rearview mirror as if somehow we could romanticize that place and go back there. And all we do is torture ourselves. And to be honest, we hurt other people in the process. She's gone back now to Bethlehem, but it's not the same Bethlehem that she left. I mean, here's the good news. It's actually better in this sense. There's bread there. And she's there now with this Moabite girl. And then the Moabite girl you're aware of has uh, discovered that there is a, an opportunity for her to actually be able to provide for her mother. Imagine, ladies, 2,000, or in this case, 3,000 plus years ago, being able to see a woman work, because it was what was happening here. And that God provided for the poor and for the stranger that you could only reap your fields once, and the corners on the other side of that, well, you couldn't reap them at all. You left that for the poor and the stranger. They would be able to come in and get their food. Now, it wasn't like you could pull your tractor in and just start harvesting. You took what you could carry. During that time now, she happens, that's her movie, but you've probably heard it. It's a Jewish expression. Coincidence is not a kosher word. She happened into the field of our hero, whose name is He Gives Strength, or He Strengthens Boaz. And with the first thing we see about him is, is that the guy, the first words out of his mouth are, The Lord, the Lord bless you to his workers. They respond, The Lord bless you too, Bob. And then he's like, Ooh, who's that? She's been working all day. Ladies, hair isn't done, makeup's not done, she's sweaty, she's stinky. She wore clothes to harvest in a field. She didn't dress up to sit at the well or to do her, you know, you know, mingle Christian mingle profile or whatever. She was, she came to work. There's no heels, stilettos, and evening gowns here. She's sweaty and she's everything that you wouldn't want a person that you'd want to meet meet in. And everything he does from that point on shows that he cares about her and he wants her. Interesting, he loves her, what seems evident is he loves her and wants her before she even knows he exists. Think that through. He's already wanting her and making plans and devising ideas of how to reveal his care for her. She doesn't know he is. She's in his field and doesn't even realize it belongs to him. And in that then, everything he does, does what he says, if you will, Help yourself to the executive fridge. Uh, in that case, it was, hey, you get thirsty, just go and get, go to the water. It's fine. It's there for you. He tells the guys, mine, no touchy. Whatever you think about it. And you know what that's like if you've got friends, guys, and you know the guy, if someone says, hey, look it, hands off. You know he's serious. And then it's like he kind of shoes everyone. It's like, hey, here's a spot. Here's a spot. Why don't you come sit here? Of course, as we watch this, it's a joke for us because we think, oh, how cute. And then he tells them, oh, I want to leave the sheep. Let her stumble upon me. What we have in chapter 3 is the difference between religion and grace. 
on religion as we know it. I mean, my understanding of how the world views religion, perhaps, is basically politics mixed with tradition. But understand the idea, the difference is really radical. And, and notice what it says now as we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, I'm sorry, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Mom's got a plan. She wants to take care of the situation. She is shipping the two of them. The chash is the word for make request. The word for security is the word manoach. By the way, the same name is the parent of Samson. Manoach means my rest. May I seek my rest for you on this, that it will be well. And here's her advice in verse 2. Now Boaz, whose young woman you are with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. She said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Stop there. Now, understand what's happening here is that, and now think about it, ladies, imagine if you were from another country, and this is a gal, now she's a local. She's a Bethlehemite in Bethlehem, and she's like, Honey, let me tell you how it works here. This is how we work it. Now, understand, Naomi, the mother-in-law, has not watched Boaz. She's not read chapters 1 and 2. She has not observed, and we have no record, that Ruth has told him these things that we've just spoken about. We, as the reader, are well aware of the fact of something that mom-in-law is not. And that is, he already loves her. And her advice is fourfold. This mother-in-law. And might I say, it is exactly the difference between everything other than Jesus versus Jesus. Boaz plays a perfect role of Jesus in regards to a man who loves a girl that didn't even know he existed, though she was in his field. And he's constantly leaving traces of his love and adoration and affection. But what a romantic God we serve. If you don't believe it, watch the sunset tomorrow night. And remember who painted that just for you. Who was it that invented color? And who was it that gave you eyes to see? Who was it that gave you taste buds and invented Thai food? Who was it that invented your ears and then invented song? Is it not a romantic God? Look at what mom says and see if it's what you're doing today. It says here, first of all, notice, Boaz, the young woman, verse 2, he's a, he's a relative of ours, he's clearly at the harvest, and because he's at the harvest, here's my fourfold advice. And by the way, I highly recommend one of the four. Now, ladies, if you're single here, these aren't bad advices, if you will. These aren't bad points of advice. But the first one is, take a bath. Yeah, that would be good. I mean, if you're single, bathing, hygiene is a good thing. Let me just say this. Even if you're married, bathing is a good thing. So she says, like, you got to wash yourself. Wash yourself up. Then it says anoint yourself. That means put on that really good perfume. You know, that kind of midnight Ephraim nights. 
You know, whatever it would be, you know, Galilean moon, you know, that kind of thing. Put it on. And then while you're at it, put on your best garment. And then throw yourself at his feet. The problem is that you have to do the first three things before the fourth. Here's the funny part about the whole situation. It's going to be night, pitch black, and he's laying by a giant hill of barley. Have you ever been around barley? Barley has a unique scent to it. A very strong scent. So put a pile of it about a story and a half tall. And this guy's going to lay down after he's ate and drank. She's going to come in in the pitch black in her best dress that he can't see, bathe though he can't notice, and perfume he won't be able to smell. But, you know, moms and dads and I probably should do that. And this is the way that it works here. Is that what mom is saying is this is how you win a man. The problem is he's already won. Now take that and relate it to God. Because we understand this because this is kind of how life is. We kind of live in a performance-based world. And here's the idea is that if, if you have to do this and this and this and this, I mean, you're somewhere about we start getting into puberty, we start realizing that there's certain things that, that fare well with the general public and certain things don't. And somewhere down the line, we kind of go, hmm, what changes, what modifications do I need to make to be liked? Do I need to be blonder? Do I need to be taller? Do I need to be thinner? And somewhere down the line, we understand that to be liked is just, if you will, because the way we start to see it from a worldly perspective is to be loved is just to be really, really liked. To be liked infinity. So what we just do is we try to turn up the other things to the extreme. So here's what happens. Hugo kind of looks and he says, what would it take to win Deborah? I think what she probably likes is a tall, blonde guy that's buff. So what does he do? He wears platform shoes. He bleaches his hair. He gets implants in his arms and shoulders. And by the time he wins Deborah, she's fallen in love with a guy that is not Hugo. The problem is Hugo's got to have to play this up if he thinks this is what women. And so what happens, you get to this point where you make all of these modifications so that people will like you. And then what happens is if they do like you, it's not even you they like. You don't even know who you are anymore because you've been so busy making someone else of yourself that would be that is sort of marketable, if you will, that by the time it gets there, it's so empty, there's no victory in it. In the music industry, before I knew the Lord, there comes this point where what happens is even when you think it's you and you kind of get caught up in the craziest things that happen in the in public eye, where you, you just everything that you kind of feel slightly convicted about, you have to turn into a brigade. You know, and everything that you kind of proclaim has to have some kind of girth behind it. But you really feel strongly about most things. Before I did the word, I really didn't feel strongly about most things, and that's a good thing. But what happens is you create this candy-coated shell of yourself in such a way that even when people like it, it's not even you. It's like they lick the outside of something, but they don't know what the gooey center is. And so then you don't even feel like though people are applauding or whatever, because you don't even feel like that's... You that they're even applying for, because to be honest, it really isn't. And we've often said, if you strive to gain, you strive to maintain. If you have to fight to win it, you have to fight to keep it. 
So what happens here is, when you start trying to apply that to God, then what you're saying is, if I do this enough, and I do this enough, and I change this enough, then God will want me. Well, then what you do is you're going to go, well, then what happens that if, well, then I have to do this for the rest of my life for the purpose of trying to keep them so they don't leave me. What a horrible relationship that is. And here's the way that works. Here's the difference between Jesus and everything else. Every other religion, if you will, in the world is all about do this and do this and do this. And then maybe in the end of it all, he'll go, oh yeah, okay, you're good. Okay, I'll take you. But notice, here's the difference. When Jesus goes after the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you cleanse the outside of the cup. But inside, you're still full of extortion and self-indulgence. And here's the problem. Is that though man looks at the outside, it's God who looks at the heart. What is God seeing right now that I'm not? I mean, you can fool me. Because in the end of it, all I can see is the outside. And you can clean the cup on the outside, but you know Jesus ultimately gives the appraisal. That's a whitewashed tomb. Looks real pretty, it's real white. But in the inside, that's what for God sees. And when you try to clean yourself up, the problem is usually all you get to is the outside. And that doesn't make it clean. It's kind of like you have an infectious disease that shows up as red spots all over you, and what you've decided to do is cover it with makeup. Sure, people don't see the red spots, but you're still just as diseased as you were before, because that's what's actually underneath all that. Interesting on the other side of it, when God speaks to us about what it really looks like to love, he says it this way about husbands, which Jesus relates to himself. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, not just to her, but for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water and word. He says, do it like Jesus did with the church. You know what he did? He gave his life to give life, to set his girl apart, to cleanse her. See, it's the groom does. In 1 John 1, 9, right in the middle of two other statements in 8 and 10, where we read about how you can poorly choose to do with your sin, deny that it is sin or deny you've ever sinned. And between them, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the difference. Anything else out there, you are cleansing yourself and hoping you're clean enough for whoever you present yourself to. Jesus, he does the cleaning. You come dirty, he cleans you. He washes you in his blood. The cleansing gift of the cross. Now, where are you at? Are you trying to clean yourself up or are you letting him do it? How do we do it according to scripture here? We confess our sins and we let him clean there's the beauty. Is we just say, in other words, we say, yes, I agree with you. This is sin. Now will you please cleanse me from it? There's the beauty. 
On the other side of it, then there's the second, and the second is to anoint yourself. The anointing yourself, there's a problem with that, of course. Now, I get the idea that you try to cover yourself in a little oil, make yourself look a little bit nicer, shinier, smell a little bit better, but in the end of it all, we'll read that before we knew Christ, we were the aroma of death. And the problem is, if you've ever been around a dead thing, any of you ever have a, a, a rodent die on your floorboards or under something? No matter what you kind of do in the end of it all, it still stinks. You know, if you have a little house, forgive me, I don't want to be too graphic, but you have a little house and you kind of know someone's had to go to the restroom, someone's had to go to the toilet, and in the end of it all, let's just say that is you, and you look over and you see a spray can and you say, oh, salvation, praise the Lord. And it says on there, cinnamon. So what do you do? You hose the place down when you're done. And you walk by, and what do you smell three minutes later? Cinnamon poop. That's what you smell. It doesn't, like, take away the first smell. It just adds to it. Here is the problem of trying to clean ourselves and anoint ourselves, is that in the end of it all, we still can't remove the first smell. We can just add to it. There's the problem. On the other side of it, when Jesus stands up to share... In, in Nazareth to start his public ministry, he starts with, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. God's the one who does it. It tells us this in 2 Corinthians 1.21 that he who establishes you is Christ and has anointed us as God. Establishes you in, in Christ and has anointed us as God. It tells us in 1 John 2.20 that you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. You know that which you need to know in this, all that you need to know. And here's the point of it. Either you try to anoint yourself, or you let God do the anointing. Now, from a spiritual perspective, anointing would be, if you think about it, how something looks gifted, how something is performed in a power that should seem a little bit superhuman, or a lot superhuman. When we see somebody, and you hear it amongst some parts of the general body of Christ, and they go, oh, that person's anointed, or that thing is anointed, we just assume what that means is there's something really cool and supernatural. Supernatural means it's beyond the natural. That's what it means. Something beyond human is happening here at this moment. But you can fake anointing. It doesn't make an anointing, but you can fake it. You know what's really sad? Some of the churches that I know that are really big and that, are, uh, that, are, that really do some really big things, hire a lot of people who don't know the Lord. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's like maybe often it's people within the like, lights and sound and, and pyrotechnics department, and you, ta- you hear some of these guys talking, and like, here is the artificial anointing in smoke machines or light machines. And I kid you not, that's what you hear them say. And the idea of it is we can fabricate an anointing. We can pretend, we can make something feel like something supernatural is happening here. You know, and you know that because you can watch a movie and it's like, I mean, if you really think it's all just visual, do this sometimes. Some of those parts that really get your heart going, just cut the sound completely and watch what happens. And you're like, okay, yeah, wow, that's pretty crazy. But then you add the sound to it and that creates more tension and more emotion if it's done right. And you kind of go, wow, that really caters to the moment. And the reason I say that is, hey, I'm not against sound and I'm not against any of that things. What I'm telling you is, is that you can fake an anointing, but only God can anoint you to do something superhuman. You can pretend all you want the problem is, if you pretend to do it, then you've got to keep pretending to make it happen. Keep it happening. 
And there's the sadness. And then the third thing is to clothe yourself. Make yourself look good. Now, to be honest, when you work on your face, my attitude is, when you work on your face, that makes you look good, if you will, up close. But from a distance, that's usually what you wear. And you learn a lot about what a person, who a person is by what they wear. You can see them from a distance, and you kind of know in Camden, certain people dress a certain way to get a certain point across. We get that. In the days that we're speaking of here, roughly 1200, 1100 B.C., your clothes were your riches. They showed how wealthy you were. Well, we can kind of get that today as well. Certain labels, certain brands, certainly they mean something. It's like put something on, make yourself as marketable as possible. In Romans 13, 14, it tells us to put on the Lord Jesus and make the provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It tells us in Galatians 3.27, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It tells us to put off the former man, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and put on the new man in Ephesians 4. But see, the point is, God is our new order. That's what our wealth is. That's where our identity is now. That's our vibe now. We actually should have the Jesus vibe. People should look. I mean, I look at those guys and they have the, the wigs of the Mohawks, which is always funny because the worst thing you could call a guy in the 80s that was a punk was a poser, and now you have poser punks. That makes no sense to me. And you watch these guys, and it's like, you know, I, sometimes you want to kind of grab the wig, but, you know, because that would be cool. But you get the idea here, and, and, and here's the thing. It's like, look at all the things you think you have to do before you come to Jesus. Are you clean enough to come to Jesus? Are you anointed enough? Have you done enough really cool Christianese things to come to Jesus? Have you clothed yourself in such a way that people have seen enough Jesus on you that you can come to Jesus? The difference between this and Jesus is you skip the first three steps and you go right to the fourth. Just throw yourself at his feet. By the time the story develops, and that's where we'll go now, of course, you get the idea here that the only one that's really going to matter to Boaz anyways is that she's at his feet. She's not, he's not going to see her in her dress. He's not going to go and go, wow, what are you wearing? You're shiny and smelling good. You know, or what did you do with your hair today? I mean, we don't read any of these things happening at this moment. She's not in a position to, well, he's not in a position to observe those things because it's not what he's looking for. We're going to see what he's looking for here in a moment. So listen, in the end of it all, can I say this tonight? Throw yourself at Jesus' feet. That's it. Let him do the rest. You know the great news is he does the washing and he does the anointing and he does the clothing. It was Mary in Luke 10 that chose the better service by sitting at his feet. In Deuteronomy 33 it says he loves God. He loves his people. He loves the people. All the saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet and everyone receives your words. It was the man who was possessed by a legion, or the legion, named the legion, that once healed, they found clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. And let me ask you, if God was someone who demanded for you to wash yourself, anoint yourself, and clothe yourself, what do you do with that guy? 
He was about as filthy as a guy could be. Dwelt among the pigs, dwelt among the tombs, lived among dead things. Think that guy was anointed? That guy was possessed. And he was naked, so he certainly wasn't clothed in anything but dirt. But he came to Jesus. And when he came to Jesus, he got everything he needed. And, and here's the point in regards to looking at someone who's, if you're part of me, saying trapped in another religion. I pray that we would actually have compassion. Because some of those people are trying so hard. You realize some of those people blow themselves up because their religion has said that the only way they could be even remotely sure is to die in a holy war. They would rather, I mean, I, I've been in situations where I've watched in Benjola women strap babies onto the front of them and hope that they get shot. Because if they did and they were sure it was a, a, a holy war, they were sure their babies would then actually be in paradise. That was their only hope for them. Could you imagine? Talk about ultimate child abuse. So when someone blows themselves up, but they're convinced of that doctrine, they think they're doing themselves a favor. It's their only security. And I look at them and I think, how sad. You really believe this will make God accept you? What kind of God? And then someone has the gall to say that that's the same God as my God? That somehow their prophet, with all due respect, if there is here, that their prophet is just another addition to ours. Ours like raised the dead. Ours healed the leper, cleansed the leper, healed the sick, died for us on a cross to pay for all of our sins and rose again to give us new life. More than a prophet, God in the flesh, the Son of God and God the Son. This guy kills a bunch of people, marries a nine-year-old, and that's the same God. That's Oh, they're all the same. That's all the same. The, and the reason I say that is, is that we get quiet about those things, but we can't afford to be, because really, in the end of it all, people are really trying hard, and some people are, really, people are out there standing at just about every tube stop trying to hand you a pamphlet, because they are told that if they don't do that, they won't go to heaven. And what's amazing is the people who do understand grace don't share it. And, and that's, to me, kind of amazing. Well, with that, she goes, and it says in verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did a calling to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Now, Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful. By the way, the word drunk here just means that he had drank something. It does not mean that he was wasted. It's important to recognize that. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Now understand why he wouldn't be the only guy there, and that's important because that whole grain would have been corporate for the field, so all of the people who worked in that field would be guarding their grain from people stealing it. That's why he slept at the bottom of the hill. So he's around a lot of barley. And it says that Boaz and Ian drunk his heart was cheerfully went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now what happened in the midnight, at midnight, that the man was startled. And he turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Now, you're there guarding your grain from thieves, and somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night because your feet just rubbed against the person that you didn't expect to be there. Do you grab something and just start stabbing? Do you whip out the gun and just start shooting people? 
Aren't you, wouldn't that be the worst ending to the story? How did he just kill Ruth? No, well, praise God, that's not the way it works. He's startled and notice he says, who are you? Verse 9. And she answered, I am Ruth. And you can imagine him going, what? I am Ruth. Your maidservant, take me under your wing. You're a close relative. You realize what she's asking is this. I surrender to you. Will you redeem me? That's what she's asking. Take me under your wing. Is I submit myself to your authority and your protection and provision. You're a close relative, which means you are our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. So, he's not smelling her and seeing if she's washed. She's not seeing if she's, he is not seeing what her perfume is. He's not checking her clothing. She just simply made herself available. And he's like, absolutely. His first word was not, let me think about it, or maybe. His first word isn't even yes. His first word, notice in verse 10, is blessed. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Interesting, when Jesus goes and transforms a bunch of people at the end of Matthew 4, at the beginning of his ministry, demoniacs, lepers, diseased, powerless, paralyzed, all brought to the feet of Jesus, if you will. And there he transforms them all. And then they're all you know, sitting on this, if you will, on this hill. And Jesus begins to teach these people who have just been transformed by God. Jesus starts his message by saying, Blessed. That's what you are. And he'll use it eight times. You're blessed. You're blessed. That's who you are. He sits down. His disciples come to him. And he calls them blessed. And here I see that with Philip. He goes, you know, you are so blessed of the Lord. You show more kindness at the end than at the beginning. You did not go after the young men, whether poor or rich. Second thing he says, don't fear. Can you hear those words from Jesus tonight? Hey, some of you, even this week, God has done things so profound that you can't even believe God would do. In possible situations, God said, not a problem. He didn't even have to roll up his sleeves and the next thing you just go, wow, did that just happen? Sometimes we think, well, maybe in ten years, step by step, we'll see these gradual things. God sometimes just kind of steps in and you're like, did that just, wait a minute, what? The whole army has surrounded you. And the next moment, you're like, oh. They're all gone. What just happened? God's like, listen, don't think. I'll do what you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Ladies, please hear me on this. Do you know what he was attracted to? virtue. That's what he was trying to do. Be a woman of such virtue that that's what a man is drawn to. And if a man's not drawn to your virtue, just don't go near him. Because a man that's drawn to something else is not the guy for you. And can I say it this way? When a man is drawn to your virtue and he values it, that he will do what is necessary to protect it. And you need a man who will protect your virtue. Men, I say the same to you. Because these days, 
You know, it's like all bets are off. It's like it's either side. Be a man. Guard your virtue. And we're going to see exactly that. The two things. He's going to do two very distinct things that night to show what kind of man he is. Now he says this. I see you're a virtuous man. Verse 12. Now it is true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than me. Ah, dang it. What that means is he's going to have to say no first or this isn't going to happen. Stay this night. And in the morning it shall be that I'll perform the duty of a close relative for you. Good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down till morning. She lay at his feet until morning. Then she arose before anyone could recognize her because he said, Do not let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now before we conclude with the last two verses, here's the two things he does. Ladies. First of all, he says, Stay here till morning. Why would he do that? Because she is gussied up. I remind you, she is dressed up. She's anointed. She's, as far as I know, she is advertised, this is as good as she's going to look. So what does that mean? What happens to every other person who comes across her? What's going to happen to them? What they're going to see is a girl that is obviously all freaked up. Here is the danger, beloved. When you get caught up about trying to just make yourself better so that God will like you, you are fodder for the world. Because they feast on people like that. And it's hard to understand. But it's not just truth, but grace and truth. The law came from Moses. The grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So listen, today... I'm praying with this particular individual in Greenwich this, this, uh, this afternoon. And as I'm praying, I see two different people walk by. One individual, and I'm just, we're talking about how important it is to marry both, grace and truth. You get people that are all about truth, but they have no grace, and you are people all about grace, but there's no truth. And as we're praying, the first one was a mother carrying a child on one of those like baby backpack kind of things, and maybe like, I don't know, right? You know, kind of looked like a boneless chicken in the back there, and just kind of, you know, going. And then the next one was a woman walking this little dog, where the dog was a whole lot of mass except the legs, and the legs were working really hard to just get going somewhere. And it was clearly on the lead. And I realized, as I'm praying, and I'm watching this, the Lord says, there you go. There is grace and truth. When you're just about grace, you're like, God, carry me, but you never get a walk. But when you're just about truth, what you are is you feel like a dog on a leaf. It's like no matter where you go, it's going to just be pulling you back. But a real person takes both. They let God carry them and strengthen them, but we walk in the right place. There's the beauty in it. And this particular girl understands, Boaz recognizes that he's not going to let her go, and he may not even be completely aware of any of the things that she's done to pretty herself up, but he does know this. She is a girl of virtue, and he doesn't want her unsafe in that virtue. He wants to protect her, and he wants her safe. So, stay here till morning, because I don't want you here where under the cloak of darkness, man's evil intent will manifest in someone else. So you stay right here and be safe with me. But when morning comes... I want you gone. Because I don't want you to be the subject of someone's rumor about what they could have invented happened here instead of what really did. 
Now hear me on this, beloved. Because nothing did happen, but it was he went beyond nothing did happen. He avoided the appearance of evil because he was so drawn to her virtue that he was going to guard it. There's the point. And in guarding it, what that means is he is not going to put her in a position where people can make up a story that has any traction whatsoever. We live in this place, beloved, where you watch people and they're like, oh, come on, we've got freedom. Yeah, you have freedom, but you have freedom to be stupid. You're free to be stupid. You're free to run in front of something and get hit by it. But prayerfully, you have enough common sense to not do so. You have the free moral agent to run as fast as you can into one of these pillars. Now, in this room, I'm not even sure the pillar won't move. But one thing's for sure is you're going to be well aware of the fact of when you actually hit it. If you run with your eyes closed, you'll know when you got to the pillar. You have the free moral agent to do that. But you should know better. But it's interesting that we could put ourselves in places of temptation. We could put ourselves in places of falling. And in all of those things, we do it. And then we still say, but I have the freedom. But if you're going to be a person of virtue, then you guard other people. Like, I want you safe, but I want you in a position of being safe where no one can make up something about you. Not just guarding yourself. This was not about Boaz's reputation. This was about hers. Because he says, don't let it be known that a woman was here. <laughs> the threshing floor. I don't want people to know that you were here in this way because I don't want people to think you did something to earn this love in a way that, because most people, that's where they're going to go anyways. On a night like this, back in California, I never left the church alone. I don't know if you know that. We always had at least one assistant pastor wait until we left. Because we never wanted to be in a position where one guy was locking up and a girl showed up at the door and needed something. And somehow it would wind up that she couldn't get care, or, well, we can't let you in the building, or worse, you let her in the building and then she invents a story because they were like, well, we were alone in the building. So what happens if you're in a situation where someone comes to you and you're like, you know what? Well, let me call someone else over if that's the position. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you enough to guard your virtue. Or let's meet outside somewhere where someone can't make up anything. And understand in this, Boaz, as a gentleman, as a man who wants to safe, wants to guard a virtue. That tells me that he's more serious about this than just getting a girl out of it. He's a man who's going to be a redeemer. A God, oh, his eternity to be, by the way. So with that in mind, let me get to our last few verses. Our last few verses says, So when she came over, oh, by the way, it says then, uh, she laid his feet till morning, verse 14, verse 15, he says, And then he said, Bring your shawl that is on you and hold it. Now that could be her outer garment or the thing on her head. More than likely it'll be her outer garment because what he does with it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. I like that term because that's exactly what he's going to do with it. He laid it on her. She said, I'm yours. And what he did, he said, you're blessed. And then he gave her so beyond what she could imagine. And then she went into the city. Now this tells me that Ruth was a buff girl. If you remember from last week, when she came back with an ephah, an ephah is 22 liters. Which, by the way, for what it's worth, is we kind of walked through a bit of that. I mean, you know, an ephah is roughly about 
10 kilograms, 10.22 kilograms. 10 kilos, or if you will, roughly 24 pounds. So, 24.24. So, let's multiply that by 6. Now, it's interesting to give you an idea that what that turns out to be is 132 liters, or roughly 29 gallons. So let me put it into this perspective. 110 liters is a large wheelbarrow. She received 132. Hmm. The average bathtub that you take a bath in is three times that size. You fill up a bathtub a third of its capacity that's how much barley she got. The easiest way for me to reference it is wheelie bins. There are two size wheelie bins, the smaller and the larger one. The smaller wheelie bin, 140 liters. She received 132. She received the amount of roughly a small wheelie bin. The one that you wheel out to the curb for them to remove. As far as weight is concerned, because we have to multiply it by six, that means she came back with 61.32 kilos, or if you will, 145.44 pounds, which I would hesitate to say is roughly the weight of Hugo. You throw Hugo in someone's apron and say, take this back to your mother-in-law, because here you go, but he's all barley. That tells me we've got it going. Now, I don't know how this girl took this to the city, but she did. And imagine her pulling up with a wheelie bin full of barley. I don't think mom has to ask what the answer is. So you did it. How did it turn out? She showed up with the mother load for mother. Verse 16, she came to her mother-in-law and she said, Is that you, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, and she said, See six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how this matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he's concluded this matter this day. This is how this part closes up for me. It closes up by saying this, Because a Gentile girl was brought in to meet the groom, the Jewish mother-in-law is provided for. Did you see that? The Jewish girl, I'm sorry, the Jewish mother saw a girl that was a Gentile and she became part of the family. They were not opposed. She was not anti-Israeli. She became part of the family. She got grafted in. And because she was grafted in, God did a marvelous work. Because she was grafted in and met the groom-to-be, if this works out, her mother-in-law will be taken care of as a result of it. Interesting. When the Lord speaks to us about Jesus, when he came, he came to those that were his own, but his own received him not. But those who did, he gave them a right to become children of God, to be part of the family. Romans tells us we were grafted in. Contrary to nature, we were wild, but now we were grafted in. We didn't belong to the tree at first, but we were grafted in. And then we were grafted in. God uses this time of the Gentiles and through all of this, God is going to use this to transform even the Jewish community as well. 
By the way, that's not a new idea. God did that all the way back in Genesis. If you remember the story of Joseph, the guy in Genesis who gets more pressed than everyone else. And Joseph, betrayed by his own brothers, sold, if you will, into slavery as a slave into Egypt. And as he sold as a slave, then thrown in prison, but then through a series of miraculous incidents, raised from the pit. And what happens? He becomes second in command to save the Gentile world of Egypt. But then his own brothers come back because of the famine, are reunited, restored, and the Jewish world is saved as well. And that's exactly the same story you see in the book of Romans. God knows what he's doing. Here's our story for tonight. It ends now with us going, well, what's going to happen? There's another guy that actually has first dibs. Is he going to say yes? If he does, this whole story is a really weird one. If he says no, why would he say no? But one thing's for sure. Boaz isn't going to rest until this matter is settled. Which means Boaz is not going to let this girl be forsaken regardless. If this other relative takes her, she's going to be taken care of. If this other relative doesn't, he's going to. One thing's for sure. Boaz is sure that not only Ruth, but Ruth and Naomi are going to be taken care of one way or the other. He's going to make sure of it. What a man. That's a man below. As we go to prayer tonight, on this beautiful, well, slightly chilly spring night here in April 2016, it is amazing how even after somebody falls in love with you and you, and you are developing that relationship, you can receive back, revert back to those same performance-based mindsets. And we can do that and go, yeah, well, we accepted Jesus and we know that we were filthy and nasty back then. But now I'm going to try to earn it. You know, if you ever try to get back to that place where you're trying to earn God's love, you'll never celebrate it. Because how do you know it's enough? But if you do realize He will love you and never forsake you and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, you know what you can do at that point is to celebrate it. And let God do the work He wants to do in you to transform you. Because He really does. That death on the cross, Jesus meant it. To pay for it all. The resurrection is going to be like the offer. At accepting that gift, you give God permission to kill the person you were. And in that, He cleanses you, anoints you, and clothes you. Gives you a whole new life. From the inside. You said yes. We should celebrate that. If you haven't said yes, you should. Even tonight. The options here. Pray with me today. God, I thank you so much for what we can learn in this example 3,200 years ago. And it's still as pertinent as ever been. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts and show us the truth in this. How truly this is intended for us tonight to recognize, Lord, that for all of the things that, uh, that Naomi has gone through here in this, this story, and maybe that's where we're at tonight. Maybe that's the point tonight for some, that they're going through a time and they're feeling lost and they're feeling empty and they're feeling uh, the sense of loss for things that they've once known. And there's a restlessness and a vacancy, and yet in that they don't see how you're going to redeem this into something amazing. 
But tonight you need to. They need to see that that book, you still are writing the book of deeds, things that, that you do through us. But tonight, help us to recognize you haven't finished the book yet. It's not closed. You've got great things planned. But we need to trust you. And if we don't, we'll want a bitter, just like Naomi. Yet in all of that, God, I pray you would reinstill hope where there seems no hope. Where all they can see is what they're missing, not what's before them. Because one thing's for sure, Naomi has the most amazing daughter-in-law to do this. And I don't want anyone to miss that. So if that's anyone, Lord, I just pray you would speak that into their hearts right now. For those today, Lord, who have receded back, reverted back to this place where they're trying to win your affections instead of recognizing how great you are and your amazing love for us. Tonight, transform that, Lord. Re... Well, fix it. Fix it, please, Lord. Make us right with you. But even tonight, we could realize that in our filthiest and our stinkiest, and our nastiest, you still want us. When we were enemies in our heart to you, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you still want us. And tonight, God, I pray that we could say, Lord, I don't have to understand your love to receive it, but by faith, let me embrace your love. And tonight here, if there's anyone who has yet to really say yes to this offer, Jesus' death on our behalf, his resurrection for new life, I ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I am a sinner. I know that. But you punished my sin on the cross of Jesus the Christ so that all my sins could be completely punished, but I wouldn't have to spend eternity away from you. And as he died on the cross, my punishment was paid. And just as scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. And in raising again, he offers me a brand new life. And I say yes. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's grace. But it is.